for the benefit of those of you that might be new here, never been here before, it's great to have you with us. My name is uh, Dave, and I'm the pastor preaching here at Four Oaks, and you are most welcome, and uh, we can all relate to what it means to be somewhere for the first time, and we're very grateful that you crossed whatever challenges may have been necessary to, to join us here this morning. And for our guests, let me just give you an update of kind of what's going on in the Sunday morning series that we're in. We have, uh, as of this past September, begun a series in 2 Corinthians titled, Weak is Strong. And uh, this is a book, if you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, which is present-day Greece. And uh, this book is a is a letter that is just filled with surprises because it takes themes like leadership and, and conflict and suffering and liberty and weakness, and it gets us thinking about them in ways that are entirely unexpected and entirely even countercultural, and you can hardly believe where, where you end up with it. You can hardly believe where God delivers you in the conclusion of the matter. And in few places is that more true than when we come to the next passage that we're arriving in this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. So this morning we're going to read verses, verse 14 all the way through chapter 7, verse 1. So you can open up your Bibles. And the title of this morning's message is Seducing the Saints. Seducing the Saints. Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in fear. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a, a complex passage. We have a short period of time. I am a man of great limitations, and yet we come here before your word with high expectations. And we ask you to move that we might see you and your beauty 
in greater measure and that we might understand the gospel in a greater way so that it can transform our lives beginning today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The name Andrew Britton probably means nothing to you. That is, unless you are somehow dialed into the medical world of Great Britain. But Andrew was a, or is a hotel director. He is a British triathlete. And he created, created a rather unique memory not long ago on his honeymoon by dying six different times. And so within hours of arriving at their honeymoon destination, this guy who is a well-conditioned athlete, he's at peak performance, he collapsed in front of his wife and he needed to be resuscitated. And upon being revived, he was too weak to even speak. He scribbled on a piece of paper. He asked, did I die? To which the answer was yes, because he had. And then in the days that followed, it happened another five times. Now, Andrew was diagnosed with a condition called myocarditis, and that is a virus. Now, I want to tread carefully here because I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I think there are doctors sitting in this room, and I recognize that you know this information far more than me, but this is what I've learned this past week, that it is a virus that infects the heart causing inflammation to the heart and often injury of the heart. And while it is not uncommon, it can, in certain circumstances, be absolutely deadly, which it almost was for Andrew because Andrew needed a new heart, which he received by the grace of God. And I'm happy to report that Andrew is doing just fine. But his story illustrates something essential, something absolutely critical to derive from this passage, which is that incalculable damage can come when a virus invades the human heart. Now, Paul gets this. In fact, he gets it very well. Because he has spent almost half the book that he has written thus far talking about his experience of relational abandonment on the, at the hands of the Corinthians, his, their spiritual weakness, their fleshly ways. And it's almost like Paul is staring at them and saying, Corinthians, I've got bad news for you. I love you, but you have a kind of spiritual myocarditis. A virus has infected your heart. And the symptoms that he points to be, are they begin to be observed not in the passage we began to read, but in the passage that precedes it and in the passage that follows it. So in verses 12 and 13, and just look at these very quickly, he says, you are restricted in your own affections. He, of course, is talking about their heart. You are restricted in your own affections, he says. And then he appeals, widen your heart to us. Paul's saying there's a virus in your bloodstream that has, it has damaged your trust and it has made you vulnerable. It has made you, in fact, vulnerable to lies and accusations about me. You perceive me in ways that you shouldn't, and I'm not sure why it's there. There is a virus in your heart, I believe. And it has busted your heart link to me, which is why he says immediately after, 
So it's not just right before this verse, this section, but after this section, chapter 7, verse 2, he says, make room in your heart for us. Paul's got this heart thing going on before and this heart thing going on after. It's almost like he's standing there in his doctor's scrubs and he's saying, I see the symptoms. Your heart is restricted. Your heart has been narrowed towards me. Here's my diagnosis, he says. You have a virus. You have a virus. And so sandwiched between chapter 6, verse 13, and chapter 7, verses two, or verse 2, Paul names the virus, and he writes the prescription for it. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to answer two simple questions. They are questions that Paul is answering directly for the Corinthians, and they're framed this way. Number one, what is the virus? And then number two, what is the prescription? Number one, what is the virus? What is the virus? Now, this is going to take some explaining, so follow along with me. Look at verse 14. Paul starts this way. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, that word yoked, you're probably familiar with it. If not, it just means to be hitched, to be attached, to be joined together, to pull something. I mean, when you hear the word yoke, think of those, those wooden kind of bars that join two ox, or is it oxen, two two of those beasts together so that they can pull a plow forward. Now here, in verse 14, what's happening is there, th- this metaphor that Paul is pulling out is actually being drawn forward from the Old Testament. And there's two different passages that Paul has in view as he's trying to make his point. There's Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, where presumably Moses says, Don't plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Two different animals, two different breeds, two different kinds of strengths, two different gates, two different ways they move. So so the command is don't do this. Don't, Don't harness these two beasts together. That's the one passage. And then the second passage is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19, which effectively prohibits cross-breeding. It says, quote, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. So in view in that term unequally yoked is this idea of cross-breeding and yoking together two different kinds of people, two different kinds of animals. So the principle that Paul is pulling forward is he's basically saying, don't hitch, don't attach, don't yoke to under the influence of somebody who's not like you, and he uses specifically the word unbeliever. Don't yoke yourself, don't hitch yourself to an unbeliever. Don't crossbreed to their world. Don't love what they love. Don't worship what they worship. Now, the stunning thought that begins to emerge, though, from verse 14 is that this passage, in the context in which it's being written, is not first about who we marry. It's not first about who we date or who we go into business with. This passage is first about seduction. It's about the seduction of the world. It's about the virus of seduction that comes into the life 
of the believer. And so to this church that is utterly saturated with sex because it's in Corinth, and they're proud of their gifts, and they think nothing of tossing Paul under the bus every chance they get, and they are too immature to forgive, and they don't understand even the nature of suffering. Paul is saying, listen, you have no heart for me because your heart is for something else. You have no heart for God because your heart is invested elsewhere. It's yoked to something else. It's yoked to the world. It's yoked to seduction. And so it's, it's a broad principle that Paul is pulling forward here. And you say, well, wait a minute, where do you get that, day?" Well, it's just, the, the, the clue is in the five rhetorical statements that he makes, these contrasts that he makes that follows verse 14. So let's just follow these along and see what they have to say. First, Paul says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And that word partnership is similar to the use of the word fellowship in the next contrast. What fellowship, the Greek word there is koinonia. We've heard that word before. It's a, it's a shared life. It's, it's, it's sharing life together. What fellowship has light with darkness? So here's what I'm saying. Pay attention to the verbs here because both partnership and fellowship are about how we do life with other people, how we do life together. And so these first two statements are about doing life in the kingdom of God doing life with kingdom people. And then he moves on to another contrast. And this contrast has more to do with who rules the kingdom that we, that we chill in, that we live in. And he says, what accord has Christ with Belial? That's just a, a name for Satan. What accord has Christ with Belial? So all of a sudden now there are two, the two rulers are in conflict over the control of our life, which is not to imply that they have equal power because God is decisively more powerful than Satan. But, but they're portrayed this way. And we know that Jesus has said that a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. And he calls upon us to take my yoke and take it upon you and, and, and learn from me. And so... Paul then starts, as he moves on to the next contrast, to kind of put a fine point to it. And he says, what, what portion does a believer have or does a believer share with an unbeliever? And then he concludes and he drives it home with that statement of the temple. What, what agreement has the temple, which is a place of worship, with idols? An idol is an alternative God. So what, what agreement does the place of worship have with the alternative God that occupies it? And the main point I want you to get from this is that with each metaphor, with each statement that Paul is making, he's, he's punctuating a diagnosis that he's bringing to the Corinthians, which is, you have a virus. You have a virus. There is compromise that is coursing through your bloodstream because you are unequally yoked. You are yoked to the world. That's the virus. Now this, this term, unequally yoked, is and has been throughout history slapped on the table to justify all kind of crazy Christian stuff 
within the church. I mean, years ago, this passage was used to justify, or I should say to oppose, interracial dating and interracial marriage. It's, it's commonly used to block business partnerships between an unbeliever and a believer. And, and what I'm saying is, you may decide that that's the best way to go, drawing from a, a body of passages and drawing from the wisdom that God gives you. But this particular passage is not designed, first and primarily, to speak to your business arrangements. It's often been used as well to keep Christians separated from unbelievers, even though Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we can't avoid serious sinners. He says, quote, then you would need to go out of the world. You're in a world, you're in a fallen world, and there's sinners that need the gospel, so you've got to be among them. This passage is also not a call to divorce unbelievers. Paul has already spoken to that as well, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If a believer is married to an unbeliever and they want to stay, they should not divorce, Paul said. In fact, this, this passage is not about marriage at all, which is not to say that one shouldn't, shouldn't examine their spiritual compatibility with the person that they're dating or they're intended so that they can examine whether they truly are a spiritual match. All I'm saying is that this passage is not intended first and primarily to address that. I mean, we, there's folks we all know, there's folks we can all point to who could quickly testify about the conflict and the complexity of a believer marrying an unbeliever. This is not a statement that we should be moving in that direction. All I'm saying is that this passage is not intended first and primarily to address that. To truly understand this passage, we must see first the, the bookends of the passage. Paul starts in verse 13, widen your heart to me. Then he says in 7-2, make room in your heart for me. See, Paul was diagnosing their heart problem. And he's saying, you have a virus. You're unaware of it, but you have a virus. This is the virus. You are yoked to the world. A layman's way of saying this is you have been seduced by the world. The world. You're worldly, he's saying. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. and When was the last time that you as a Christian heard the term worldly put into use? I mean, I'm thinking 20 years ago, that was a term that, that Christians trafficked in, for good or bad. The label could be used in a positive way. It could be used in a negative way. He's kind of worldly, you know? She really struggles with worldliness. And, and uh, those kind of labels can be unhelpful, but it was a label that was meant to describe a slide towards carnality or a way of life where somebody really is more in bed with the world than they are following Jesus as Lord and Savior. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, the reason the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Do you agree with that? I think I do. I think I do. But I also know that in my own light, life, my, you know, my, my bar, I think, has lowered my bar for what I eat or how much I eat or what I watch or what I listen to is at least different than it was 20 years ago. And I think the reason I'm, I'm, I'm sharing that and what I, what I want to get at is that rather than us talking about 
you know, the music that we listen to or the money that we spend or the movies that we watch or our position on tattoos or, you know, whatever it might be. I want to keep the discussion centered on the force of the text. Because Paul is raising a far more provocative question than we have to wrap our brains around. He is raising the question whether the greatest danger in our life is not the world's persecution, but the world's seduction. And I don't know that we think about that very often. I mean, the profile should undoubtedly be raised on the world's persecution. More than ever, more believers are being martyred for the glory of God. And we must both weep over that and thank God for their example. So the world's persecution is indeed growing more serious. But for us here in the West, there's a far greater threat. We are not going to be threatened this afternoon for our faith. But there is an internal threat. There is an enemy within that we must recognize that has to do with seduction. And so rather than us talking about all these other things, let's listen to what Paul is talking about, and let's allow his questions to become our questions, because the point that Paul is making to the Corinthians is that your heart has a virus. That virus is seduction. You have been yoked to the world. That's why you're not open to God. That's why you're not open to me. Corinthians, that's why your heart is closed. And listen, we're not going to really understand the force of this text unless we understand the connection between the world and the openness of our heart. Between the seduction that takes place and how well we're really moving on in our Christian convictions. So that's why Paul is raising the virus with them and he's raising it with us as well. And that's the first question. What's the virus? But that leads us to the second question where Paul talks about the prescription. The question is, what's the prescription? And the first prescription that Paul writes to combat this whole problem of being yoked is God's promises. God's promises. Look at verse 16. Look at the second part of verse 16 where he says, For we are the temple of the living God. And then he kind of starts to riff on that whole theme of of being the temple. He does it by making three points that are designed to fight the seduction virus of being yoked to the world. He says in later, a little later on in verse 16, he says, I will make a dwelling, I will make a dwelling and, I, and walk among them. In other words, you have my presence. You are my people and my presence is among you. Which is basically where he goes in the next line. He says, I shall be their God and they shall be my people. You have my presence. You are my people. And then the concluding section is, he goes with, be separate from them, don't be unclean, for, and then he says in verse 18, he comes back to it, for I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. In other words, we are a family. Now just listen to where Paul was going. Listen to where God is going with the whole problem of seduction, the whole problem of worldly Christianity. Because the first place that he's going has to do with how we view him, how we understand ourselves in relationship to God. God says, you're growing more worldly, but here's what I want you to hear. You have my presence. You are my people. We are a family. 
And we know these are promises because Paul interprets it that way in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, we have these promises. Now, you know what's so fascinating about where Paul goes here? It is that in responding to the Corinthians, their idols, their preoccupation with the culture, their seduction, our seduction, us being yoked to the world. What's so interesting is that Paul doesn't start with behavior. He starts with identity. He starts with identity. In other words, the prescription is not, what should I do, God? What do I need to go out and do today to do better before you? What do I need to do to please you? No, that's not where God goes at all. It's not with what should I do. It's about who I am before God. It's about identity. All of the Bible is about identity. The story of the Bible starts as a story of identity. Identity is given to us in the garden. We're represented in Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, after God. God is our Father. He is with us. He is among us. He's walking in the garden with us. And then the whole Genesis chapter 3 thing happens with the serpent, and our identity is stolen, is corrupted by sin entering the garden. Death comes, death through sin, and then comes Jesus and the gospel where identity is restored through Jesus. But, but, but part of what Paul's getting at here and putting all of these things into play is that our greatest problem, and the greatest problem behind yoking, is not that we, uh, and you fill in the blank, it's not that we look at porn, it's not that we spend our money selfishly, it's not that we, we drink too much, or whatever it might be. The problem is ultimately identity theft. It's, a, it's the, the, the stealing of our identity. Have you ever heard of LifeLock? LifeLock is that identity theft company. The CEO of the company was, I'm not sure he's still there, was a guy named Todd Davis. Todd Davis was so confident in the ability of the company to protect people's identity and, and, and so had such a high confidence in the company's security that he published his social security number as part of their PR campaign. He put it on the side of trucks. He put it on billboards. He posted it online and broadcast it all over the place. And shortly after that happened, someone took out a $500 loan in the name of Todd Davis and then a day or two later, somebody opened up an AT&T account in the name of Todd Davis. And over the next few days and weeks, there were 13 other breaches in security, accounts opened up, this unbelievable damage that was done for this guy. Why? Because his identity was stolen. Because the businesses that he worked with didn't know who the real Todd Davis was. See, that's what happens. That's what happens with worldliness. That's what happens with seduction. And what we need to understand is that being unequally yoked, quote unquote, 
it's, it's not an event. It's not just something I did last night. It's not about who I had dinner with a couple of nights ago. It's, it's actually a series of drifts, subtle seductions, where we lose the sense of his presence in our life, where we lose that sense that I'm, I'm his, I'm part of his family, where we slide from, from Bruce Jenner to Caitlyn Jenner, same person, but lost that sense of, you know, here's the crazy part of that, and, and, and really in, with, within respect to God. God's heart aches, aches for Kate and Jen. Because identity is not an option. It's not like you're buying a car. You add one thing, you take another thing away. I don't like the blue, I'll take the gray. I don't like six-cylinder, I want four-cylinder. Identity is bound up in creation. Identity is bound up in the beauty of masculinity and femininity. And what we have taking place in the, in the transgender world is this inversion of creation. And it results in one of the greatest losses that a human being can encounter on earth. And that is a loss of a sense of self, a loss of a sense of, I was created this way. It's ultimately a loss of identity. But one of the points that I'm making this morning is that it happens to Christians as well. And that's equally dangerous. I mean, maybe you know the, maybe you know the Christian mom whose kids are grown and they've left the house. And all of a sudden... She finds herself lost. The joy she once had when, when there was just a rhythm of life, attending church and involved in all these different things, that joy is gone. She feels disoriented, disenfranchised, doesn't know her place, doesn't understand what's going on, feels regularly disoriented. She's drinking more than she could. There's just this sense where life has lost its meaning. And what's happening is there's been, a theft. there's been an identity theft. That identity which she once had in Christ, where Christ, where the presence of God was real to her, the name of God, the family of God, those are things that she identified with has been replaced by another identity. My kids became the new identity. And we could walk right through each of our lives and talk about the temptations of where that's going to confront us. But what we have to understand is that sometimes our greatest drifts, sometimes our greatest disappointments in life. In fact, let me talk to you if you're here and you're over 40. Sometimes the greatest disappointments in midlife is because we are unaware of an identity attack and an identity loss. And so through passages like this, God invites us to, to return, to come back. Not to a list of do's and don'ts, but to first come back to an identity that we have because of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us, that the Spirit of God lives within us, that he's been given to us because Christ ascended on high, because Christ died and rose again, because we are adopted within the family of God. We have a father. We have a family. We have an identity. So the first prescription that Paul writes is a prescription for God's promises. 
He says, go to God's promises. But then there's another one that has to do with something that they must do and we must do, and that is a prescription for our holiness. Our holiness. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, our fight against the world is not just about a new identity. It's not just about believing this about Jesus and who you are and doing nothing else. Feel free to just chill out on the couch with a remote in your hand and do nothing but believe who you are in Christ. No, that's not, that's not the way Scripture portrays change because in here, in this passage, as a good example, there is also this aggressive, courageous, enduring action that we must take to pursue holiness. You know, if, if you're from a, a well-established, well-to-do family with a good name and you break your leg, it's not enough to have a good name and be from a well-established family that has great insurance. You've got to seek treatment. You know, you've got to do something. So here, Paul offers the Corinthians treatment for the virus that they have. And this is what he says, cleanse the wound of your worldliness. Wash away, he says, every defilement. Then he says body and spirit. Body and spirit suggest both conduct, that's body, and and thought, that's spirit. So it's not just about what we do. It's not just, for instance, about gluttony. It's about coveting, you know, the, the thinking behind gluttony. It's not just about pornography, it's about lust, the desires that generate putting us in front of a screen. It's not just about the things we do sneaking. You know, we, we have those areas of our life, you know what I'm talking about, where, where we sneak things. Wouldn't want anybody to know about it, but we sneak things. It's not just about that. It's about the independence that keeps us isolated in our sneak. It's not just about outward anger but it's about indulging a certain vein of thoughts that returns us to that anger and makes that anger almost a physical response and a physical emotion. You know, I get the situation um, from the past. And I've been caught in a rut of thinking about it day after day, time after time. And you know one of those things where you just, you wake up in the morning and it's like right there. Your eyes snap open and and the first thing that presents itself right there is is these things from the past or this relationship or this experience where you feel like somebody has shafted you or you've got the wrong end of the stick or you've been sinned against in some way. And I found that my meditation was kind of drawing me towards the world. And what I mean by that is, is not that I was going out on a binge drinking campaign because I felt that way, but, but that I was feeling vindictive. I was feeling like, boy, if I had the opportunity, I'd really want to lay down some punishment. And, and I have these um, what I call witness stand words, you know, where, where in your mind you begin to indulge a vein of thinking where that person 
or that group is on a witness stand, you're in a courtroom, and you are just, you are just cross-examining them. And you're permitted not to just ask questions, but to make statements. And so you're brilliant because you're saying all the things that you forgot to say at the time. And everything is just coming to your mind and you're putting them in their place and you're clarifying how you think and what you really believe and what they did wrong. And you're brilliant. I mean, because in reality, isn't it true? In those moments, we're never brilliant. You know, we never have. It's a very rare individual that just in the moment can always think about the right thing to say. Typically, we all carry around this baggage of, oh, I wish I would have said this. Then that I would feel so much better about it. And so we have this witness stand, you know, words that we exchange with them. And I realized I was just replaying that over, in my, over and over in my mind. And I was getting convicted because there was a vein of worldliness. There's a, there's a, a resentment that begins to, to come in. And, 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 and by the grace of God, I just began to see that I needed to replace those thoughts. And so now I'm trying to memorize Psalm 56. I'm about halfway through it. And I'm just trying to, and it's hard. I've been doing it for a month. I still haven't been able to memorize all of Psalm 56. But, but what I'm doing is that when these hard thoughts just present themselves, I just swap them out. I just go right to Psalm 56. I swap out those thoughts and stick in what I can recall of Psalm 56. And it's just simply one way that I can, quote, cleanse myself from every defilement of body and of spirit. See, Paul says, break the yoke. And to break the yoke, we must act. We must cleanse. We must bring holiness to completion because we know God is near. We know he is real. And we fear him. Now, you know, most of us read this passage and I I think we go to the same place. You know, we want to measure ourselves in some way. Where am I on this whole holiness thing? In other words, am I bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord? Or am I just growing and indulging myself? Maybe another way to ask is, how do we know if we're growing more holy or if we're growing more yoked to the world? Well, you've heard of of home pregnancy tests. Uh, This morning, I'm going to give you some home holiness tests. I'm going to give you several home holiness test that will help you think about how do we know if we're growing more unequally yoked. And I I want you to do it at home because too often applications and messages on holiness from preachers has us saying or feeling like, well, well, I just need to do this or I just need to do that. And I believe there's a place to just for preachers to just say, do this. I mean, if you're involved in sexual immorality, I want to say to you this morning, flee sexual immorality on the authority of the word of God. It's wrong. It's sinful. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy the person that you're involved with. So there's a place to say that. But, but today's goal is to send you away with the Holy Spirit and engage the Holy Spirit And invite him into a process of revealing to you where you might need to improve, where you might be failing certain tests. And I've got five of them I want to give to you very quickly. This is the home holiness test. Here's the first one. The test of free time. The test of free time. So here's some questions you can ask. What would an audit 
of my free time reveal about what I love? What do I talk about with others? You know, what, what subjects do I discuss when I don't need to discuss anything? You know, when it's not one of those times where I have an agenda or I, I need to be bringing some kind of intentionality, where does my mind go? How about this one? What amuses me during my free time? What, what do I laugh at? How do I like to joke with other people? See, the Bible says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So the speech that comes out of us when we're just chilling, we don't need to be anybody, we don't need to have any agenda, we're just chilling, we're, it's, it's Dave Roth. Well, that's really a great reflection of what's in my heart. So what's that saying to us? That's the test of free time. Here's another one, the test of liberties, the test of liberties. How do I relax? How do I relax? What do I feel entitled to? What, of, what are the mys, quote unquote, in my life? You know, hey, this is my time. This is my hobby. This is my program. I want to watch my program. How about this? Do I do things I would not want my kids to know about? You know, you know, sometimes the fear of exposure before God can be kind of abstract. We can't really wrap our brain around that. So let's change it up a, bit, a little bit. Let's just plug the kids in because that makes it a little more real. How about this one? Am I known more for defending my liberties rather than my growth in godliness? What, what do people know me for? Is he the holy guy or is he something else? test of liberty. Here's the next one, the test of privacy. The test of privacy. Do I have, think about this, do I have any unspoken secret sins that have become kind of tolerable to me? Maybe it's anger. I mean, maybe it is pornography. Maybe it's drug use. Go to the Spirit of God. You know, the, the test of privacy is really about the fear of God. It's, it's the fear of God test. It's, it's, it's chapter 7, verse 1, doing this in the fear and bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because this, these questions measure whether we believe that God sees what we do in private and whether God knows what we do in private. And so ask yourself, in what do I find refuge? And what do I find security? And what do I find comfort? Where do I go when I want to escape? When I'm fearful or discouraged or disoriented or upset, to what do I run? Is it food? Is it work? That's a common one for guys. Maybe it's halo. Maybe it's self-pity. What do I do when I'm alone? A guy named William Temple once said, quote, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Test of pride. Next one, the test of spending. Test of spending. If you looked at my credit card or my ATM statement, would it reflect a pattern of self-indulgence? Or would it reflect a generosity towards the things of God? 
or towards other people or towards the poor or towards the pro-life initiative? What makes me feel rich? What makes me feel secure? What makes me feel prosperous? You know, the Bible uses this fascinating metaphor of, of treasure, that our heart follows our treasure. Jesus said in Matthew, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart kind of, or, or the treasure kind of tows your heart behind it. So if you want to invest your life somewhere, you invest your treasure there. In what situations do you or do I say, I wish? I wish. See, I, I, I wish I had no kids. I wish I had tons of kids. I wish I had the opportunity to travel. See, wishing defines our vision of the good life. It defines what we would really love our life to be if we were God. And the flip side of that is it kind of portrays our disappointment as well. And it can reveal where we tend to envy other people or where we are dissatisfied or discontent or where we would just like to have things different than the way God has arranged our life. The test of spending. Here's the final one. The test of companions. Who do I like most to be with and why? Why do I want to be with them? And then, and then add this question as well. Do the people that I like to be with provoke my growth towards God or just make me stagnant or draw me back to Egypt? See, scriptures say that bad company corrupts good morals. That means when bad company meets good morals in a back alley, bad company kicks its butt every time. That when they're in the cage fight, it's bad company that's coming out of the cage. So we have to think about that. Who are my role models? Who are the people I respect? Who do I most want to be like? See, you know what a role model does? Is a role model reveals something about the direction of your dreams, the direction you want to go in. So ask, why do I desire to be like them? And then take that answer that the Spirit reveals to you and, and map it against Scripture and see what, it, see what it says. Now, you know, you ask questions like this and you begin to realize, I mean, right out of the gate, oh, Lord, I'm infected. I've got the virus. I don't even need to take this home. I can take it right here. I can see. Well, here's my encouragement to you. You're far worse than you think. It's, it's far worse than you think. If God were to pull back the veil of all of the corrupt desires that you or I have and all of the ways that we sin, it would crush us. Jerry Bridges once said, even our best works are shot through with sin. Even our best works are shot through with sin. In other words, we are somehow in our fallenness able to smuggle self into our highest motive and to our most noble deeds. Somehow we're able to smuggle ourselves into it. So we're far worse than we ever think, but equally important to that is that we are more treasured than we could ever imagine. We are more treasured than we, are ever, we could ever imagine. You are so loved by God that God sent his son, to, that, that his son would come and live 
a holy life, the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserved because of the sins that we had committed. He took our place upon the cross so that he could supply to us a new identity, so that he could call us his child, so that he could give us his presence, that we would not be alone. Even when we're solitary, we're never alone because God is there. And that we could carry with us through the different seasons of life and the rhythms that we go through, his name, knowing that we are a child of God. You see, one of the wonders of the gospel is that when you drench yourself in the antidote, well, the virus becomes powerless. The the virus becomes somewhat irrelevant. And that's good news. And so don't allow the punch and the poke of this passage to intimidate you this morning. Because yes, sin is big, but the Savior is greater.